While we're taking a moment of uh, personal privilege, I, I would like to do the same. I'd like to thank everyone for, for all of your love and all of your prayers throughout this entire time. Uh, it is truly a delight to be here and to be able to minister and to serve you in the ways that the Holy Spirit has called me to do so. Let us now turn to the Word of God. As we continue to worship, we'll be going through the first chapter of Nehemiah today, verses 1 through 11. I'd like you to please rise as we have the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twelfth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived their exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servant and the prayers of your servant who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as we worship you, and we continue to worship you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would now illumine our minds, our souls, to understand the truth of your word. And we pray, Father, that you would help us, and you would grant us the grace that we would need to conform to your will, and to be reflective of the Lord Jesus Christ as we serve you this day and forevermore. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I have a sermon which is going to have five points. I, I wasn't able to get it in time. Uh, however, each of the five points starts with Nehemiah was a man. And I'll give you these five points now, and I'll try to point them out to you as we go through this, uh, the sermon itself. So the first point is, Nehemiah was a man who saw God's people were in need. The second one is, Nehemiah was a man who thought he was out of his league. The third point is, Nehemiah was a man 
who recognized that it was God he needed to fear. The fourth point is Nehemiah was a man who recognized that man was not to be feared. And finally, the fifth point was Nehemiah was a man who was changed. So, we are now seven days into this new year, and we as Americans have had seven days to do what? The thing we like to do the most, right? Make New Year's resolutions. So, I like to look at these um, resolutions that Americans like to make uh, over a long period of time. And um, I've got here compiled the top 10 New Year's resolutions that Americans like to make. Perhaps maybe you've made some of these. Now, I want you to know that um, I'm going to read them to you, but they're not in any particular order or priority. They're just 10 that I have here. So I'll read them to you now. Um, The first one I have is quit smoking. Number two is to lose weight and to eat healthier. The third one I have is to quit drinking. Obviously, we're talking about alcohol. Number four is go back to school and get more education, presumably. Number five is spend more time with family. Number six is to reduce spending on living expenses. Number seven is to spend less time on social media. Now, you know, as I mentioned to you, I've done this for, uh, I, I studied this for many years. This one is obviously a new one that's hit. Years ago, this really wasn't one of the news resolutions, but it is here, spending less time on social media. Number eight is to take a trip. Presumably that when you take a trip, you would want to spend less time on social media so you can actually enjoy the trip. Number nine is, of course, to pay off that Christmas debt that seems to be there every year. And then number 10 is to get a better job. Wow. So these, these, because these resolutions are at the beginning of the year, you, 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 as I've turned on the TV, I've seen commercials already or even in the newscasts that uh, there's these, uh, all these books that are out there, the recommended self-help books on how to achieve all these goals that you can you know, go to Amazon and order your book. It used to be years ago, you'd go to Barnes and Nobles, but now you order them on Amazon. And not only are there these um, uh, books, these self-help books, but I'm sure you've uh, seen these, uh, the, you know, the famous 30-minute infomercials that offer you a way to reach your resolutions, you know, get rich quick, whether it's through the stock market or buying a distressed property. Uh, and then, of course, there's these exercise machines that are everywhere now uh, that's going to help you to lose 30 pounds in 30 minutes. How you may ask that is possible, uh, because they were just delivered from all places from heaven. That's how it's possible. Marketers are very savvy, aren't they? Uh, they? Their job is to recognize whatever the needs are, or perceived even, uh, the perceived needs, or even a genuine need. And they will identify it and go about the business of providing products and services to help you achieve them. Certainly they say that they have your best interest at heart. But in the end, their best interest is always mitigated by their desire to reach into our pockets and trade their products and services for our money. Now, they're willing to help, but they want something in return, right? They're all willing to help, but they want something in return. That's unfortunately the way of the world, isn't it? It offers help, but it does want something in return. What about you? We're on the cusp of a new year, as we just mentioned. Have you made any resolutions? Have you given any thought to how perhaps you can serve God and his people more this year? 
Have you given thought to your spiritual growth? Have you given any thought to find out where God's people need help, even here in this church? Perhaps there's a great need for your talents and your gifts that you don't even know about. And that brings us to our first point this morning. Nehemiah was a man who saw God's people were in need. Nehemiah is visited by his brother Hanani, and fellow Jews had just returned from Jerusalem. They had firsthand knowledge of the circumstances in Judea. Nehemiah asked his brother and friends of the condition of God's people. Nehemiah had a concern and a love for the people of God. Now, it raises a question. As a, as a Christian, you should have a love and concern for the body of Christ. As Christians, we should have a love for one another. In fact, Jesus said in John 13, 35, that the world will know us as Christians by our love for one another. When the world says that you should look out for number one, Christianity comes along and says, look out for others. When the world says that you will serve others uh, better by making yourself happy first, Christianity comes along and says, I will be happy when I serve others first. So what about you? Do you have a concern for the brethren here in this church? And, and how does one find out if there's even a need? Well, I think you have to do like Nehemiah, what he did. Ask. You can ask an elder. You can ask a deacon. Go through the announcements that we have, and you may be able to discern a way in which you can love and serve the body of Christ. So we see that in verse 3, his brother gives a sad report. The remnant, those that God preserved after the destruction of Jerusalem, are in pretty bad shape. The city walls had not been built as hoped. Those that dwelled in the city were exposed, and they were exposed to wild animals. They were exposed to hostile neighboring warlords, and they were exposed to thieves and bandits who were able to come into the city to pillage because there were no walls to protect the people. Now, Nehemiah's response was a profound concern and sensitivity to the community of believers. We find in, in verse 4, Nehemiah is mourning, he's weeping, he's fasting, and he's praying. How, how do you, brothers and sisters, how do you respond when you learn of a brother or a sister in Christ is in pain and in need? Do you suffer along with them? Do you pray for them? Do you come alongside and, and serve them in their time of pain? Do you minister to their hurts? Do you care for them when they're exposed? So my experience in ministry has revealed that Christians affected by the gospel really do want to serve the church. But what is commonly a stumbling block to serving is the fear of doing something that is out of their league, beyond my pay grade, or I'm just not qualified to help. We fear not being able to do something beyond our comfort zone, don't we? Do you sometimes find yourself in that same boat? 
do you think that sometimes you're not qualified? And this moves us to our second point, that Nehemiah thought that he was out of his league. I'm going to take a moment here to develop this thought. Nehemiah was a man who was in service to the Persian emperor Artaxerxes. If you ever read through Nehemiah before, you may have experienced something that most readers of Nehemiah typically come across. And that is the statement that Nehemiah makes at the very end of the chapter. For I was the king's cupbearer. When you read through the chapter, you find yourself scratching your head, wondering why he's telling us this. As we read, the chapter begins by the discovery of the precarious situation in Jerusalem. He then turns to God in prayer and fasting and repentance. In verse 6, and intervenes upon the covenant community before um, God's people. And then later he throws in this statement, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now to help us understand this, the first thing is to sort of, what we do is we peek into the next chapter, don't we? To see if we can make sense out of this, or perhaps maybe it even belongs in chapter two. But when we read it, we discover that that really isn't the case. It really doesn't belong in chapter one. I'm in chapter two, I should say. I think that the clue to help shed light on this is the mediatorial role that, that, that he plays in this particular context by praying for the people of God. Now, it was common custom in the ancient Near East that if any man was to ser serve a ruler or an emperor uh, that required close proximity to his harem and his family, that he must be a eunuch. This practice was instituted in order to protect the monarchy from illegitimate males ascending to the throne of the kingdom. If there was a question as to legitimacy, it may have caused a kingdom to fracture that leads to chaos and then ultimately war. The scripture is full of examples of this practice. We see that in uh, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 11. We see that the eunuchs were administrating for the king in Nebuchadnezzar's court. In Esther chapter 1 and verse 10 that you all have been studying in the morning, we see for King Ahasuerus, uh, who would marry Esther, was also served by his eunuchs. And then we see this also in the New Testament itself, don't we? When we go into the book of Acts in chapter 8, we see that the official from Ethiopia himself was a eunuch. Therefore, Nehemiah was in all probability a eunuch himself. But why does he tell us this? What relevance does this have regarding him going before God and interceding on behalf of God's people like a priest would, like a high priest would? Well, I think we find the answer to that question in Leviticus, where in which we see in Leviticus 21, verses 18 through 21, specifically 20, it tells us that a man could not represent the people of God if he was among several things a eunuch. Nehemiah interceded on behalf of his people, a task that was reserved for the prophets, the kings, and the prophets of Israel. Nehemiah perhaps thought himself out of his league. He was a eunuch. He had a secular job serving a secular leader. He did not have the credentials and the training to take on a task he was called to do. Now, if you could put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes, what do you think would go through his mind? I don't have the education to do this. I don't have the experience to do this. I may fail. I'm not a Levite. I'm no Ezra. I'm no Moses. 
I'm no King David. I'm no Isaiah. Comparing himself to someone else. And if we spend some time on this, we could probably come up with quite a list, can't we? Isn't it true that there are all things that flow through our minds? We make excuses why we can't or won't do things for Christ. Now, we spoke earlier about the 10 resolutions, the top 10 resolutions, if you will. Americans make it near. So let me share with you the top 10 reasons people have offered me why they won't serve the body of Christ. And this is not in any particular order as well. I'm not a minister. I'm not a deacon. I'm not an elder. I'm not qualified. I can't tell others about Christ because I don't know what to say. I can't because people will make fun of me. I can't serve because so-and-so will be upset with me. I don't have the time. My spouse won't come with me. And I don't know the Bible real well. We make excuses that we're out of our league, don't we? But Christ calls us to serve him and his bride, the church, nonetheless. Paul tells us that the church is the body of Christ, of which Jesus is the head. Some are toes, some are eyes, some are ears, and some are hands, right? Each of you has been gifted by the Holy Spirit to minister to the body of Christ in a very unique and wonderful way. Not everyone is called to be ordained, a minister, a ruling elder, a deacon, but you are uniquely qualified. You are uniquely gifted to help the body of Christ. Nehemiah, I believe, thought he was out of his league. He tells us apologetically, for I was a cupbearer, only a cupbearer. This, I think, falls under the, uh, the category of, I'm just, right? I'm just, you fill in the blank. Don't think that because you are, well, you fill in the blank, you can't serve the body of Christ. So what happened from the time that he fasted and mourned to the time when he responded to the call to serve God? And this takes us to our third point. Nehemiah was a man who recognized that it was God he needed to fear. Nehemiah recognized that it was God whom he needed to fear. Now, if you take the time to read the rest of Nehemiah, you will discover that he was a very capable man whom God used to accomplish many great things. What was he suffering from, and what did he learn that turned it all around for him. What are you currently suffering from, and what do you need to learn so that God can use you without you fighting and kicking and perhaps screaming along the way to accomplish great things for his church? Nehemiah was a man who recognized that it was God that he needed to fear. God created man with a desire to worship him. But after the fall, this capacity to desire 
to, to serve the true God went away, but rather it was focused upon the creation and the creature. The Apostle Paul is succinct with this description of the natural progression of the fall of man, and he says in Romans 1, 21 and 25, which I'll read for us. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Dr. Ed Welch says, regarding the fear of man over the fear of God, all experiences of the fear of man share at least one common experience. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. Since there's no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Now, in some sense, every human being should at some point know and understand the terror of God, God's holy justice. For every, everyone is a sinner and, and has to stand before a holy and just God at our death to answer for our sins and be punished for them throughout all of eternity. Except, of course, all those who have found shelter and pardon by faith through the cross work of Jesus Christ. But the fear that I have in mind is, is really a reverent, loving submission to God, which leads to a desire to obey and follow him. Let me repeat that. It's a reverent, loving submission to God that leads to obedience and following him. Now, this worshipful fear that I'm talking about, God knows him as a God of justice and holiness, but it also knows of God's great forgiveness and mercy. It knows the God who sent his son to die and be punished in our place. Now, mankind has many gods. Um, we're talking about small g here, aren't we? Other than the true God who exists. You and I, yes, you and I, Christian, we create idols in our very hearts. In addition, we buy into the idols that society creates for us. And these idols can be really anything, can't they? They can be money, they can be glamour, beauty, success, power. What idols, all idols have in common are the following. See, they've promised us something that we want. That's why we pay attention to them. Number two, they demand us to fear them. And over a period of time, what they ultimately do is they enslave us to them. I want you to look at your own life for a moment. Have there been times when you've made people idols? Now, I'm not talking about Sean marrying someone and making another idol. I'm talking about idols that we create in our own hearts 
And then eventually, did you somehow become subject to those idols? Maybe you have an idol right now that you're subject to. We all want something from a person or people. We sometimes want approval or love from them. Ultimately, what we want is we want them to make us happy or we want things from them, don't we? So we follow them. They become our idols. We started out, when we, when we started out as, as something that we wanted to get from them ends up becoming something that they get from us. We end up doing what they want. We don't do what they tell us not to do. And we can sacrifice much to get what we want from our idols, can't we? And haven't we? For example, there are so many Americans today who want to be the next glamorous model, music star, you know, the rock star, the movie star, and so forth. In the process of doing this, they, they go to expensive schools to get the training that they want. They go into great debt, and they work for pittance in restaurants so they can be free to do auditions. They starve themselves so they can fit into dresses and clothes befitting a model. They will fornicate just to get in a show or make connections. They sell their souls to their gods. Now, what I've just described is a bit extreme, I understand, but the principle is the same in every case, isn't it? We submit ourselves, we submit our lives to serve these gods. What are your gods? What takes up your greatest energy? What takes up your time? What are the affections of your soul? So when there's a need to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, here in this church, for example, and you're asked to do it, the way you answer, perhaps, now hear me, may reveal who or what your God is. Not only do humans serve the gods they fear, but they serve them with, and this is important, with boldness. And this is so important for us to recognize. You see, if you truly love Jesus and, and worship the triune God, then you should fear him. And if you fear him, you should serve him with boldness. You will no longer make excuses as to why you can't do things. You will no longer say to yourself or others, this is out of my league. Your loving, reverent fear for God will propel you to serve him without fear for man because you fear and adore God more. The occasional ridicule for proclaiming Christ or mild contempt for your faith and service to God will no longer matter. It is when you fear God over man, you'll be able to identify with the Apostle Paul when he says in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, worthless, in order that I may gain Christ. Do you know Christ? Have you given your life to Christ? 
You see, God's people are no longer driven by terror, fear. Fear that has something to do with punishment. Instead, God's people are blessed with worship fear. The reverential awe motivated by love and the honor that is due our great God. You see, Nehemiah became bold when he recognized that God was to be feared and not man. And this is our fourth point. Nehemiah was a man who recognized that Jehovah was a God who kept his word and consequently his promises. His track record proved it over and over again. His biblical knowledge helped him to recognize that he saved his people from the bondage of Egypt just like he promised and that he would save him again if they repented and turned toward him. God offers forgiveness to you for your sins, and he will keep his word. He promises to give you eternal life and a joy that surpasses all understanding, even in the midst of your trials and the tribulations that you go through in life. Will you search your heart today? And turn from your idols and bow the knee of your heart towards our great God again. Are you tired of the bondage to your idols? They can be so fatiguing, can't they? When you're reminded that God is all-powerful, all-wise, omnipresent, loving, and just, you should begin to fear him. And as you do, your love for him will begin to dispel your fear for man, just like the sun's rays pushing away the darkness of night upon a morning fog. Nehemiah experienced this as well. Let us not forget that he was in the service of a man who was the emperor of the then known world. Whatever he commanded was carried out with great fear. He was looked at like a god by his subjects. Nehemiah may have feared him in a very unhealthy and unspiritual way, but we see that in verse 11 of this text. He says, grant me success in the sight of this man. When Nehemiah saw the emperor for what he truly was, a mere man, in contrast to who God is, Nehemiah didn't fear the emperor. That day, his fasting stopped. His mourning stopped. His praying stopped. He went forth boldly and began to petition on behalf of God's church to help them. It is when you recognize your gods for what they are, false gods, then you will be free from them. It's not only when you recognize them for what they are, but also when you recognize them that they are worthy, unworthy, totally unworthy of your worship. They can only give you a momentary satisfaction, not an eternity of joy like God can. Nehemiah recognized that God was huge in comparison to the emperor, and followed God unto death was more worthwhile than the rubbish the emperor had to offer. 
And when he delighted in fearing God, there was a radical change in his service to him, which comes to our fifth point. When you delight to fear in God, there will be a radical change in your life. You will no longer skip church for whatever it is that you like to do in its place. You will skip that thing so that you want to and will go to church. When you delight to fear in God, there will be a radical change in your life. You will no longer be fearful of stepping forward to serve God and your brethren. It will no longer be a chore, but it will be a joy because you will be serving the one who died in your place. Oh, what a glorious joy. When you delight to fear in God, there will be a radical change in your life. You will not care if someone makes fun of you for proclaiming Christ. And you will not be hurt by their rejection because you would rather obey God and fear him more, more so than the fear of ridicule or scorn or rejection of any man. So, we are seven days in. Are you ready for a radical change that will affect not only the upcoming year, but perhaps the rest of your life? Are you ready to be used by God like Nehemiah was? You know, I'm reminded of the hymn, perhaps maybe you all have sung it before, um, Dare to be a Daniel. There's got to be a dare to be like Nehemiah or be bold as Nehemiah him. We've got we've to write something like that. In conclusion, what fears do you have, brothers and sisters? What shortcomings do you perceive you have that won't allow you to serve God? Are they really shortcomings or are they an unrealized fear of man? that constrains you from serving the great and wonderful God in this church, perhaps, or in other ways, in a bold new way. Do what Nehemiah did. Turn to God in prayer and ask him to give you success in your endeavors, to glorify him according to his good pleasure. Fear God and not man. Once you've been freed from the fear of man, you will experience the relief and peace of serving a loving God. And you will have a boldness to serve Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us we thank you that you're always there, and indeed that you're a God who keeps his promises. We pray now that as we enter this new year, that you would be with us, that you would grant us the grace, the strength, the boldness that we need to serve you, to serve your people, to bring glory to you, and that you would free us from the bondage that comes to us from following all these false gods. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work a work in us so that we may be more concerned about you 
to be more concerned about our neighbor and less concerned about ourselves, trusting you to provide all that we possibly could need and that you would provide and protect us in the way that you see fit. And we ask these things so that people would see Christ in us more and more each and every day. And ultimately, that you would be glorified by that. And we ask this in the name